make this happen. This, I know this has to be your will. I know this has to be your plan and purpose. Just do it. Make it happen. That sounds like, no, that's my will, and I want you to do it. You work for me, God. Right? Don't ever presume to think that you know God's secret will completely. Like you know everything that God should be doing and shouldn't be doing and how he should work and bring things to completion. You, God, you do what I want. That's how we test the Lord. Second way that we test the Lord is this. Is that we do yell these things. Do do this, God, and I'll believe you. Do this for me, and I'll I'll believe that you're faithful. Make this happen, and I'll, I'll trust you. Has God not given us an abundant amount of reason to trust him and believe that he is faithful to us? Has he not? Has he not? He has overabundantly shown himself faithful throughout all generations. So for us to come and say, do this one thing, prove yourself to me that you're faithful, that's throwing everything from generation to generation to generation to generation back in God's face and said, you have not done enough, God. You've not done enough. Lastly, you know, when we demand that he submit to our will, or we say, do this, show yourself, those are ways that we test the Lord. But here's another way. Presumptuous sin. Where we think, you know what? I know God says it's wrong to do this, but he's really not going to do anything about it. My life won't necessarily change any. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to hurt anybody else. Hey, you know, there's, there's lots of worse sins I could be doing. Right? To think that God doesn't care about when you sin or that he won't do anything when you sin. That is testing the Lord. It's like playing Russian roulette when the gun is full because he does care. He does. So presumptuous sin, thinking that God doesn't care about my sin, he's not going to do anything about it. That is testing the Lord. Do not demand that he submit to your will. Do not demand that he prove himself. And do not think that he is not concerned about your sin, church, because he is. He is. So that is how they test the Lord. But they go on. They quarrel with Moses. They grumble against him in verse 3. We've already seen grumbling the past two weeks. Grumble and grumble and complain and complain. Right? And then they, then they begin to question God's very intent and in what they're doing. Look at verse Verse 3, they grumble against Moses and they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're questioning God's goodness and his plan. Surely he cannot be good and know what he's doing if he's brought us out here to die and our children to die and our livestock to die. Clearly he, do, he, he hasn't figured this thing out. He hadn't planned ahead. Or clearly he has a bad motive, an agenda to kill us. They're questioning God's goodness. God has evil intent to bring us out here to die. Either he doesn't know what he's doing, which is a problem, or he isn't good, which is a problem. This is where Israel's come from, not having water. And you see what's happened? They quarrel, they grumble, they complain, they test. And they even question God's very nature. Do you see the intensification of Israel's sin? You see, like, man, it's... Woo, they're, 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 they draw a line in the sand and they just take two steps over it, right? They keep going further 
and further and further. And the sin just keeps getting what seems to be worse and worse and worse. Demanding, quarreling, grumbling, threatening. Moses, Moses thinks he's about to die. They're gonna, God, they're going to stone me out here. They're getting, it's a riot for me, right? So they're, even, they're so mad that they don't have what they need right now. They're thinking about killing Moses. Church, I think we can think something about this because sin intensifies. It does get worse. If left unchecked, sin does not sit stagnant. Sin, sin does not just stay where it is and like it just starts, stays with grumbling. Look at where grumbling got them to, that they're willing to kill a person because they don't have water. That's what sin does. Church, believer, listen to me right now. If you are in sin right now, if you are playing or toying with a sin right now, thinking God doesn't care or God doesn't see or God doesn't know or any of those things, or it's not going to get worse or it's going to stay where it's at. Let me tell you this. What we're learning from Israel right now, sin does get worse. It does intensify. It does not stay where it's at. Look where grumbling goes. It goes to hatred and willing to kill somebody. And this is Jesus' own words. Where does, where does murder come from? It comes from where? It starts with anger in the heart. Sin does not sit stagnant, church. So do not play and toy with it. Their actions here, their actions actually <laughs> set a bad precedent where Moses goes ahead and names the place Massah and Meribah, which is not a good place for it to be named, right? Massah meaning to test, quarrel, Meribah, test and quarrel, is that this is what these places are named. And they're bad omens, they're reminders of how they responded to God here. And so, this place will always be, by its very name, a reminder to them of what they did here. When they did not trust the Lord, they were discontent, they questioned, they quarreled, they grumbled. It's a constant reminder, every time they pass this place, this is how they responded. It reminds me, one of my favorite scenes in Remember the Titans. Well, I love Remember the Titans. You remember when Coach Boone goes and wakes all the, the team up, and it's like 4.30 in the morning, and he says, get up, we're going for a jog, you know, right? And so they get up, and they're jogging through the woods and everything. Oh, you know, they're done. They don't even know where they're going. And finally, Coach Boone stops, and they're in the middle of this big field. You remember that part? And where are they at? Gettysburg. Gettysburg. And as you know, and remember the Titans in the middle of the camp, in the middle of their culture, they're dealing with racism and fights and breeding, all these things, breeding quarrels among the team. And he says, look at here, do you know where we're at, Gettysburg? The same thing that we're dealing with right now is what these men died on this field fighting over. And if we don't change anything, we'll end up just like that, fighting over these things. He says, remember what Gettysburg was for. It was fighting over this. And so a place has this resonance throughout all generations for people as a reminder of what you can become and what you do. And this is what Meribah and Massah does for Israel. Remember this place. This is the name of it. Remember how Israel responded here. Take a hint from them. Take a hint from them. And so God, despite their distrust and discontent, he miraculously provides for them, right? He gives them what they need. Miraculously, right? Hey, strike this rock, 
and water starts pouring out of a rock. I asked, my, I asked our, you know, Judy and Grant yesterday, I said, you ever heard water coming from a rock? I'm like, no, never heard of that. Yeah, you probably never will, because it doesn't happen. But again, God showing his miraculous power over these things to bring water out of things that don't provide water. And so, God provides for them. But this place will be a constant reminder of their unfaithfulness to him. Where it says in verse 7, this is what they said when they tested the Lord. Is the Lord among us or not? That's what they said. When they had a need, they needed water. He said, is God even here? Is God even near to us? Does he even care about us? If we're in this situation and we have this need, he clearly can't be here, right? But I think you would answer with me that the story of Exodus shows itself that God is constantly near to his people and does not leave them. And so what, what should we get from this, this story of Exodus 17, 1 through 7, is that we should not repeat the sin of Israel here, testing the Lord, quarreling about him. And that this story in Exodus will be retold from generation to generation, reminding them, don't, don't test the Lord. Would y'all, would y'all be okay if we just went to a journey in the Bible just for a second and ask you to turn a couple pages? Would you turn with me to Psalm 95 real quick? Psalm 95. You can keep your hand on, on Exodus 17. We'll be back there. Psalm 95. is that the psalmist will retell the story of Exodus 17. So this, this is many years later. And one of David's songs is retelling the people who are hearing that were very distant, very, very in time-wise, that they were not there at Exodus 17. And so, but he wants to retell them about Exodus 17 so that they know, don't do this again today. So listen to what Psalm 95 says. This is verse 7 into verse 7 going to to 8. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not... Not know my ways, therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So this is for David's generation. He's saying, remember what happened years ago at Meribah Massah. So today, hearing this story, don't harden your hearts and test the Lord. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. So if it was for the Exodus generation in Exodus 17, if it was for David's generation in Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews brings it up again in Hebrews chapter 3 to say, not only is Exodus 17 for their generation, for David's generation, but it's also for us even now. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, today if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me tell you this, cross point. Today, today, if you hear his voice in the word, do not harden your hearts and test the Lord. The story and the message of Exodus 17 was used in Psalm 95 for David's generation, was used in Hebrews 3 for the author's generation there, and is now used for us. Do not harden your hearts and test the Lord. That is the most dangerous thing that you can do to hear this warning. Listen to his voice in the word. Do not harden your hearts through discontent, through distrust, through suspicion of his character, or through sin. Because as 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and 10 tells us, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Do not test the Lord this morning. This morning, God provides water from the rock. He provides water from the rock and he saves his people's lives through that by providing what they desperately need and he sustains his people through providing water from the rock well this morning christ is our saving and sustaining rock he's our saving and sustaining rock this morning who provides living water that will eternally satisfy you and you might be thinking okay that's a stretch west that's a stretch that, that rock is you're making that analogy about christ guess what i didn't make that up paul did Listen to what, turn to, I'm asking y'all to flip in your pages in your Bible, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You might be thinking, okay, you're making everything, every object about Jesus in this passage. I'm not. Paul is reading the same passage and he's telling us how we should read it here in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. This is verse 3. And they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, capitalized rock, that followed them. And the rock was who? Christ. Whew. Paul's reading Exodus 17 and saying, The God who's there on the rock that provided and sustained and saved Israel's life there, that for the church right now, the sustaining and saving rock is Christ for us. This morning, church family, cross point, the only thing that is going to sustain us through the ever-present troubles in our culture and our lives is this, Christ. Christ. There is no amount of willpower. There is no amount of stamina. There is no amount of steam or motivation that we can conjure up, manufacture. Crosspoint Baptist Church and every church that is a gospel preaching church. The only thing that is going to sustain us, this church, is Christ. This morning, Christian, the only thing that's going to sustain you this morning is Christ. Unbeliever, the only thing that's going to save you and sustain you this morning is who? Christ. It's Christ. Christ is our saving rock. He provides us living water. And as John 4 tells us, he provides water, and if you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. Never. This morning, 
you might be, and you can turn back to Exodus 17, you might be responding like the Israelites right now. Is the Lord not among me right now? I'm going through this situation in my life. I have this sickness. I have this issue. My finances, my family is torn apart. I'm breaking apart. I'm, I'm depressed. I'm lonely. Whatever it may be. Whatever it may be. Is the Lord not among me right now? Is the Lord not among me? I'll just tell you this. The word tells us over and over again. Joshua, when Joshua 1.5, when the Lord gives Joshua the commission, he says, I'll, I will be, be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, is what Joshua 1.5 says. And then the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13.7, tells us, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Christian, this morning, the pains and trials of your life are not indicators that the Lord is not among you. It's not, it's not what it is. Because the story of Joseph is really clear about that. Joseph is in a pit. He's in prison. And all throughout, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Your pain and trials of this life are not indicators of the Lord's presence. You may face a need or not know the answer to a particular pain, to a particular trial, suffering, whatever it may be heartache but let me tell you this i know i can say this as a matter of fact as an absolute truth to you christian i know for a fact that whatever you're going through situation it's not because the lord has abandoned you i can say that as a matter of fact from god's word because it's very clear whatever situation you're going through right now it's not because the lord has abandoned you he was always with his people as he says to his disciples in Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the what? End of the age. Whatever you're going through, it's not because God has abandoned you. So God is our, he's our provision. He's our provider. He is what we need and he gives us what we need. But he also protects us from our enemies and the enemy. This is 8 through 16. You know, we're probably all familiar with the story of, uh, of Moses' hands growing tired and Aaron and her come up and lift hands and, and they, they prevail in the battle. And you've probably heard this story in the sense of, you need to find good friends who will hold your arms up. Get, get, find your Aaron and find your her and get them to hold your hands up. Get them to bring you a rock so you can sit down. You need good friends to hold your arms up. Let me just tell you this. Good friends are good to have, and you need to have good friends who will, some of you don't want your arms held up, uh, and some friends don't want to hold their friends' arms up, because they smell, but uh, but good, friend, good friends are good. You need friends to help you and hold you accountable, but though friendship is great, this story is more about God's power than the power of friendship. It's more about God's power than the power of friendship. What God did, right? What God did. And so look at what we have here in verses 8 through 16, is that this is going to be a story throughout Israel, throughout Israel's story, is that there's always going to be rivaling enemies and nations against them that they're going to face. You get into Joshua and Judges in these places, and even First and Second Samuel, that they're always going to be facing rivaling nations who's going to try and take advantage of them, take them over, and, and make them their people, right? They, they're trying to make Israel 
come back into bondage, under their bondage, as they were in Egypt, right? And so this is what Amalek is doing, is that this is an unprovoked attack by Amalek on God's people, so that Amalek can make them his people, right? Listen to what Deuteronomy 25 says about this very scenario. I think it's really interesting how, how Moses tells us what's happening here in Exodus 17. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? So Deuteronomy 25 is getting them to reflect on, remember years ago when Amalek came against you? L- listen to what he did. Verse 18, 25, 18. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and when you were weary and cut off your tail. Not literally a tail, but it says, those who were lagging behind, and he did not fear God. So this is what Deuteronomy 25 tells us what happened here in Exodus 17. Amalek, unprovoked, wanting to make Israel his people, actually comes and harms some of the stages of people, and he takes them over because he sees that the, he can take advantage of them because they're weary and they're faint, and he can, it's, an, it's low-hanging fruit for Amalek for him to do that. And so what happens is that God commissions out Moses and Joshua to go and fight against Amalek. Moses said to Joshua, choose men and go, and he's going to stand on this hill with the staff of God, the very staff of God that he just struck the rock with, the very staff of God that he used to turn the Nile into blood and things like that. He goes and stands on this hill, right, while Joshua and the army fights against Amalek. And so while Moses' hands are raised high, what happens? Israel what? It prevails. They're winning, right? And when his hands fall down, what happens? Yeah, he's losing. Right? Amalek prevails. Right? And so this is what happens until in the end, when his hands are held up high, Israel prevails ultimately over Amalek. So why did Israel prevail in this scenario? Because Moses is the man. Duh, Wes. Right? Moses is powerful, right? Or because Moses had the best friends. That's why, that's why Israel prevailed. Aaron and her, best friends, great friends. Or, no, 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 no. Joshua was really strategic in his battle plan, really mapped it out well. So that's why they prevailed. Anybody know the answer to all three of those? Right? Now, Israel prevailed for two reasons, God's promise and God's power. This is what God promised them. He promised that he would guide them and protect them from enemy nations. If you look in Exodus 15, 13 through 18, this, is, this was part of their song that they sang after they just got saved. And it, it says this, starting in verse 13 of chapter 15. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of your greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by by whom you've purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary of the Lord which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Why? Why is Israel prevailing over Amalek right now? Why will Israel prevail over every enemy that lies ahead of them? Because God promised it. It's what he said. It's what he said he was going to do. He was going to protect them. 
who's going to guide them, who's going to lead them in his steadfast love to the end when they're on his holy abode. Why did Israel prevail? Because God promised it. Second reason, it's because God's power. Despite Moses' arms getting weary and tired, guess whose arm did not get weary and tired? The Lord's. The greatness of his arm does not get tired. So that Joshua may think that he's, man, we are fighting good, man. We Look at us. Man, we're kicking tail right now. Man, we look so good. But ultimately, behind all that is God's power. It's like a little kid. I don't know if parents, you've ever uh, had this situation where you're, you know, you see your, uh, your, your child and they're, they're doing something that they're unsuccessful at. And so you're like, I'm going to little bit well I'm gonna keep it under wraps so they don't even know right and so maybe they're shooting basketball and you're just helping them like make it or something like that or you know I- anything like that and they're just totally oblivious and like I am awesome how am I so great at this all the while they don't have a clue that the parents like behind them like just keeping it going that's that's the thing Joshua Moses they may be thinking we're awesome we're great But ultimately, at the end of the day, it is God who is behind the scenes working everything out for their good and for his glory. His power is on display here. It is not Moses. It is not Joshua. It is not Aaron and her. It is God's power, his arm. And so take this, church. Take this as a reminder. Your salvation, your victory over sin, are never because of your own power, are never because of your own might are never because of your own strategy, are never because of your own, purely your own wisdom. It's only because of God's promise and power. God gets the glory, and we get all the benefits of his promise and power. God gets the glory, and we get all the benefits of it. And so, to recall their their earlier question, is the Lord not among us? What does this show here in verses 8 through 16? Clearly he is, right? Clearly he is among us protect and save them from their enemies and so Moses gives instructions he does two things he says write down these things recite these things right recite these in Joshua's ear so that it may be passed down from one generation to the next so that they may hear what the Lord has done on this day to defeat Amalek write these things down because people from every generation they need to read these things they need to hear praise God we have God's word right and that another reason I'm so thankful we have God's word that authors recorded these things so that we would know and we would, we would be confident in what God has done from out, throughout all of history to be faithful to his people. And not only that, but he builds an altar and names it, the Lord is my banner. To remind them in future generations, when they see this altar of what God had done, it was a symbol of God's power and his victory that was displayed. It's, it's, a dec- it's almost even like a declaration that this is his territory. This is his people. Right? I was looking this past week on, um, you know, if, if y'all remember that famous photo of the, I think it's the Marines who are raising the, the flag in Iwo Jima. Remember that? Just that iconic, iconic. After they had battled and won that hill there, and they raised the flag, kind of planting in there, and says, we've won. This is is our territory now. This is what this is what this altar is kind of doing and naming it Lord's my banner. It's declaring for God, He is victorious. This is His territory. This is His people. Nobody's going to mess with them. 
because I am among them. Right? The Lord then makes a promise that Amalek will come to an end. And if you keep reading the Bible, if you're reading through the Bible right now, you'll get to a place in 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 30, where you'll find out Amalek is brought to an end in 1 Samuel 30 by David. He's brought to an end. But Amalek is, is a representative of how all of God's enemies will end. They will all be blotted out. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, they remind us of this. That the last day, the final judgment, God will bring an end to all of his enemies. You know how he'll do it? He'll do it through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will come riding on a white horse, swords coming out of his mouth to judge the nations and rule them. So every enemy that we have in the Bible here, every enemy that opposes God, every enemy that sets themselves up against God's people are representatives of what is ultimately going to happen on the last day when every enemy of God is put down. And God will get the victory. And so church this morning, let me just ask you this. How will you prevail through trials and the tribulations of this life? How will your greatest enemy, sin, death, hell, and Satan, be defeated? How will you be victorious in the end? The answer is here, because of God's promise and God's power. He promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And the power that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will sustain us to the end. He will provide for us and protect us to the very end. 1 John 5, 4-5 says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory. The victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in Jesus? The Son of God. Jude 24 says this, Now to him who is able to protect you, from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. 1 Peter 1.5, those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. God, church, is going to provide for us to the very end and he's going to protect us to the very end. That is our hope in this life. That God will be our provision and God will be our protector. This morning, I just have to ask you, are you under God's protection right now? Are you under God's watch and guard until the last day? Because if you are not, you will not make it to the end. You will not make it through the trials and struggles and sufferings of this present life. And you will have no protection from the wrath to come. You will have no protection from the wrath to come. How do you receive protection and provision that only comes from God? It's faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the de dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This morning, if you are apart from Christ, you have no hope to make it to the end. You have no provision, no protection in Christ Jesus from God. This morning, you don't have to walk out that way. This morning, here's how you get it. This is what Psalm 210 through 12 says. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, 
O rulers of the earth. Take a warning right now. What you're hearing from God's word, unbeliever, hear it and be warned by it. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, meaning do homage, worship Christ, the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. This morning, how how are you going to obtain provision? How are you going to obtain protection? This morning, take refuge in the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's the only way. Church, God is our provider and protector. Trust Him and don't test Him. Unbeliever, this morning, you do not have provision or protection in God, but you can by taking refuge in the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to worship and we give thanks to you. May we not test you, O God. You have proven yourself over and over and over again that you are faithful and can be trusted. We are the ones who are faithful. You remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself, O God. So, Lord, I pray, help us by your Spirit at work in us to trust that what you have promised, you have the power to bring about, and that is your promise of keeping us to the very end. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.